In this episode, Paul Altavina shares his more than 40 years of experience in the payroll industry with more than 16 payroll company acquisitions. All those experiences with us to help us learn how to drive the value up in our business and to create a value wedge between us and the national competitors. This was an awesome episode. I learned so much from Paul. I was taking notes the whole time. Really excited to put this one out. I hope that you enjoy it. He just shared so many things that are going to help you that he's learned over the years, all the way back from his days with paychecks back in the late 70s through today. He's doing innovative things all the time and shares a ton of great, valuable nuggets. I hope you enjoy this one. Let's go. Welcome to Payrollin', the show where you will learn how to operate and grow your payroll business from the most dynamic minds in the business. If your company offers payroll services, this is the podcast for you. And now, here's your host, Matt Vady. Let's go. Are you tired of dealing with payroll? Would you just like to finally get out of this industry and start focusing on what you actually do best, whether you're a CPA, healthcare broker, whatever your core discipline is, you started offering payroll services because you thought it would be a great value add. And then you quickly realized, well, this is consuming way more time for not enough money than I originally thought. Did you know that we are actively acquiring payroll books of business? We would love to work with you to identify if we can help you to partner with the right group that makes sense for an exit for you, but creates consistency in how you continue to treat your clients. If you're interested in learning more about Guru's acquisition services, simply go to guru.co forward slash acquisitions. That's G-U-H-R-O-O dot C-O forward slash acquisitions. Hey, Paul, hope you're doing well today. Great to have you. Welcome everybody to the third episode of Payrollin'. Today, I'm talking to Paul Altavina from ConnectPay, and we are going to be talking about a lot of things, uh, but primarily just about their growth model and what they've done over the last 13 years. Thanks for joining me today, Paul. How are you? I'm doing great, Matt. Doing awesome. great. Awesome. So ConnectPay is almost 13 years old, but it's not your first payroll company. And it's not even really the start of ConnectPay as we were just talking about in our conversation leading up to it. So tell us a little bit about your long history in the industry and your story. Well, ConnectPay really is a uh, rebranding of uh, when Michael and I started. Michael Young is my business partner. We started in 1998. Um, basically, he in Massachusetts, me in Michigan, and we licensed Advantage Payroll to begin with. We quickly understood, and I understood from a past history that we really needed to own our technology. We needed proprietary technology. So by 2008, we had exited the licensing model at, at uh, Advantage, rebranded ourselves as ConnectPay, and uh, began moving forward. And I'll get a little deeper into that story, but. My history goes back quite a long way, late 70s actually. I uh, started out after college as a client of Paychex. I was actually sold by Tom Golisano. 
who convinced me that outsourcing payroll was the thing to do. Didn't take much convincing. Every Friday, I hated doing payroll. <laughs> days when you looked in a circular, you created a uh, pay stub, and then you wrote out a check. It, it was a nightmare. Uh, Tom convinced me that they could do payroll better than I could, and he was absolutely right. Um, within six months, Tom convinced me to join Paychex. I moved to Boston, and uh, the rest is kind of history. We began building the company. By 1983, we took it public. By 1986, it had gone from a very entrepreneurial environment to a corporate environment. And uh, it was time for my exit. I was ready to go and look for another venture. Um, I kicked around for a few months and then got a call from Tom Golisano about a, a, a business that he had bought in upstate New York. And as he looked at it, he said, it's got all the elements of what we like. It's business to business. It has a recurring revenue model. And although everybody in the industry doesn't see it as service, it really is a service business. So that was my DNA all the way. And uh, we joined forces and started a company called SafeSite Records Management. We went into the records management business. And over the course of about three years, we opened 11 uh, record centers around the United States using a joint venture model with partners that would open in a particular city. Uh, we consolidated that model and always thought we'd take it public, but a company had already gotten there by the name of Iron Mountain Corporation. Mm. By 1997, they met us an offer we really couldn't refuse, and we sold the business to Iron Mountain. And that's where uh, I took Michael Young, who had already become a partner of mine at SafeSite, and uh, convinced him to go into the payroll business. At the time, he kind of came kicking and screaming. He didn't know much about the business. But I convinced him it really played to our DNA once again, recurring revenue, business to business, and service, which is where we always lived. So that's really the history of how we've gotten to where we are. That's awesome. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about that transition from Advantage to Connect Pay and what that looked like. Yeah, at the time, um, and in retrospect, uh, fate sort of stepped in, and that fate was that I got a call from an old friend that said, hey, remember, I know you're looking for software. Do you remember Richard King, who worked for a very small company in Massachusetts by the name of APS? APS was a competitor of mine back in the early 80s with paychecks. And the founder of that company, a guy by the name of David Haynes, who was just a really terrific guy, he and I had become friends. We were competitors, but once again, just a very friendly relationship. He had been developing his own software from the time that he entered the business back in the mid-70s. And Richard King was one of his programmers. Uh, Richard rose to be the CIO of that company. That company morphed and grew into Interpay. Interpay became quite a powerhouse on the East Coast with almost 50,000 clients. Interpay was then sold to Fleet Bank. Fleet Bank's payroll business was inevitably sold in the early 2000s to Paychex. And Richard King and his team of development people, who by this time had built two platforms specifically for the payroll services industry, 
uh, decided to exit and build their own, um, what we might call at the time, more leading edge technology platform. So we happened on Richard right as they were in the writing stage of the application. Michael and I began investing in their company. We began using the, the application, uh, launched really in about 2009. Always thought we'd go down a licensing road and we actually began that way, licensing the software, but quickly learned that we didn't like the licensing model. In many ways, it was kind of the tail wagging the dog. You've got a lot of licensees out there with many, many requests for different features and benefits. And in the end, their strategies didn't match our strategies. So by 2015, we really decided we no longer wanted to be in the licensing business. And that took us to our next phase of where we wanted to go. And uh, we really, at that point, uh, consolidated our different companies, including the technology company, into ConnectPay and embarked on a, uh, a much more focused strategy of growth. That was really the time where we defined where we were going to go and what we were going to do. Up to that point, you could almost say we were living a lifestyle sort of business. The reality was that we, we needed to understand what our long-term goals were. And at that point, it was really about growth. So consolidating like that, by the late 2016, we had decided that we would uh, embark on a uh, two-pronged approach to that growth. Organic sales in the traditional sense and acquisitions uh, understanding that, that there were many factors uh, revolving around our industry that would be uh, really playing well to our strategy generally. I can go into specifics of that. Yeah, I'd like to come back to that piece in just a moment, but you're touching on something that I think is, you noticed a big smirk come from me when you talked about the features, uh, requests of all the licensees. As you know, we built a licensed software, Guru, white label HR system. And you know, we were kind of joking yesterday about our mile long feature request list that grows every hour that our poor developers are, you know, I literally ping them every hour. How hard would it be to do this? How hard would it be to do that and, and, you know, trying to meet the needs of everybody, which is challenging because, uh, you know, you want to sell to the 80%, not the 20%, right? And so you don't necessarily want to be focused on uh, the, the needs of those folks that are fringe cases and, and it gets very challenging. But you also hit on something in there that, that I think is, I was going to ask you a question about, you know, why you needed to own your own software. You basically answered that question already. And I think you started to answer a different part of that. And, and I think there are two definitely very different types of owners out there. When you look at payroll bureaus, there are people that are own lifestyle businesses that are going to create the type of lifestyle they want. They can hit the golf course and go out on the lake. You know, they can leave early. They can get a, create a company that runs itself. Um, and then there are people that are trying to build something that's what I would consider investable right? And something that somebody would put money into if you tried to raise a round. And without software, that's highly unlikely in our industry. Uh, that is the impetus behind that type of uh, uh, growth pattern. So talk to us about that mentality and the difference between a lifestyle business and an investable business. Well, I, I think that once again, kind of goes back to my DNA and uh, really to the start of paychecks in a sense. Uh, the vision for paychecks really early on 
was not only growth, but it was about creating value and equity, and then eventually liquidity in some way for not only the shareholders and investors, but liquidity in a general sense. Uh, so it, it really is about creating value. And one of, the, one of the lessons that I learned very early was that literally almost every day, you look to create value in your business, make your business more valuable. How do you do that? You're adding clients, you're servicing those clients well, uh, you're perfecting certain processes that'll help you to become more efficient, uh, gain a certain economies of scale. All those things are, are relating and contributing to value. And that, that's the point. So I think it's just generally part of my DNA. And that's not to say that, that people that may be running a lifestyle business uh, are, are wrong. That's, that's perfectly fine. I mean, I completely appreciate where they are. Balance in life, no matter what, is extremely important. I have, I have five kids and I've never missed a, an athletic event of theirs or a, a play or anything. It, those, are, those are moments in your life that you have to treasure more than anything. Uh, business comes, business goes. Uh, you, you need to have balance. So I, but I do believe it's just generally having, having built uh, uh, within paychecks and then within the records management business. Uh, like I said, I just think it's in my DNA. Well, and I think that kind of nails it home is there is, there is that DNA component of it and you have to be honest with yourself. I see too many people that are want lifestyle businesses, but also want investors or want to grow and scale and like you're not going to scale a lifestyle business there you know it's kind of interesting i remember early on we were talking about hey we're we're going to get to this 10 million dollar mark by this year and the, and the advisor i was talking to was like that sounds like a really nice little lifestyle business you're going to grow there and you know to me at the time to talk about a 10 million dollar business was like dude that's an amazingly huge business what are you talking about he's like nobody invests in a 10 million dollar you know that's that's not what that's and so that kind of changed my perspective and it's interesting and and you, you have to be honest with yourself about what you want the business to do but i just love what you said right there and for those of you that aren't watching the video and listen to the podcast i haven't stopped taking notes and paul asked me before this why did you decide to do this and this is exactly it cuz paul would not spend an hour with me otherwise where i could just just pick his brain and take notes. Uh, so, so I do it and record it and he will. So uh, you, you said, look to create value in your business every single day. That is such an awesome way to think. And I really appreciate that. Let, let's transition to it, to what you just started on a moment ago. So you lead the mergers and acquisitions team today. This is obviously a unique thing for a regional provider to have and, and a very aggressive mindset, I would say. And, and I think it was one of the things I've told you, I ran into your team at IPPA and they were wearing like windbreakers with a number of acquisitions on the sleeve. And they, you know, you, were kind, you guys are proud of the fact that you're going out and acquiring new businesses and just that mindset I found to be really appealing. Talk to me about the evolution of that and, and what that looks like today. Well, it, it, that's interesting. Uh, I actually started with the very first acquisition back in 20, it was late 2016, actually the beginning of 2017, uh, with a uh, locally here in Michigan, um, a small provider that really uh, decided that she wanted to exit the business. Uh, she was having a lot of uh, personnel problems, staff issues, uh, 
Uh, she was afraid that she wasn't servicing the clients properly. Uh, she was looking toward more of a retirement. And uh, it kind of it just clicked. And we sat down and literally over dinner, uh, I was able to make the deal, which, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you truthfully, I walked away almost surprised. Mm -hmm. I don't have a background of M&A. I didn't come out of the financial world as a professional from uh, Morgan Stanley or uh, uh, Goldman Sachs as an M&A specialist. But uh, we, we clicked and it worked. And we moved that conversion uh, locally here inside of about less than 60 days, almost 350 clients at the time. And uh, it was painful. It was difficult. We learned a lot. And uh, the first 30 to 45 days with those clients, you know, one of the things we learned in, in that very early time was that clients don't ask for change. They didn't ask for the change. So to begin with, they're a bit angry. And I can remember many angry calls with certain clients where I'd, I'd ask them to give us a chance, let us earn our stripes. And if we fail, uh, we won't charge them a nickel and we'll help them to move off. Uh, those 350 clients, we did not lose one client. Wow. And 60 days later, I was getting calls from some of those same clients that were giving me an ass whipping and apologizing and telling me just how wonderful we really were and that everything that we said we do and more, we, we did. So that kind of gave me an awful lot of uh, confidence in a sense to move forward. And what I observed uh, generally within our industry was a couple things. First off, demographics. Demographically, uh, the timing is playing very well to consolidation. Hmm. There's a lot of people out there my age that have been in the business 25 years that are now looking for the door. They've built their business. They now have to figure out how to get the equity out of it. Where's the liquidity event for them? So today, I think there's a statistic out there that, that anybody can look to that says there's about 10,000 baby boomers retiring every day. So demographically, timing is good. The second uh, factor that I think is very good in our favor is uh, technology. Hmm. Uh, I did an acquisition, uh, I think it was in 2018. And the sellers of that acquisition coined a phrase for me that I love. When I asked them, why are you selling your business? Because I always ask. And they said to me, the tsunami of technology is beginning to wash over us. Hmm. We're going to end up losing clients because we can't do things. And for us to upgrade software, whether go to another licensor or is just not in the cards. We're in our mid to late sixties and it's not where we want to be. Hmm. So those two factors right there are, are contributing heavily to the opportunity that exists. There's a third factor now that is beginning to really uh, take hold, and that's regulation. In our industry, which has operated for many, many years with almost virtually no regulation, uh, is now on the precipice of a great deal of regulation. We're going to see it. 
uh, happenings like my pay or uh, my uh, my payroll HR right. out of work, uh, and the event that happened in Indiana uh, has sent up extreme red flags to legislators all over the country. And we're going to see a much heavier degree of regulation within our industry, whether it's money transmitter laws that uh, come into effect. It, at a minimum, it's going to accelerate the cost of business. Cost mm -hmm. of doing business is going to get higher. Uh, potentially, it could create such uh, regulation that it, it'll be very much impossible for the small provider to continue. So we're watching it very closely. Uh, our association, the IPPA, is very much on it from a govern government affairs point of view. And uh, we're seeing the, the results uh, in terms of people getting much more nervous and, and pursuing what's the transition? What do we do? Uh, well, it's, I feel like we've given the IPPA several commercials here over the first few episodes and haven't even told some of the folks out there what it is. Uh, so the IPPA is the Independent Payroll Providers Association, hugely valuable organization. If you're listening to this and you own a payroll company and you haven't connected with them or, or gone into the events, I can't suggest it enough. I was telling Paul before this interview, for the first five years of running our business, I basically stiff armed them thinking that I was going to do something unique. I didn't want to follow the, 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 the path, if you will, of what every other payroll provider was doing. I went to my first event and I was hooked at the education, the material, the people. I mean, it, it's been a tremendous asset. We're members now. And, and you know, like I said, every episode, the, the acronym has come up, so it's worth mentioning. But uh, you, you're touching on so many great things there, talking about demographics, talking about the technology, talking about the regulations. I think it, it's interesting when we were preparing uh, to launch Guru, we were doing industry research, obviously, to say, you know, because people were like, there's not enough payroll providers to provide white label HR software. There's just, there's, that's not a very big market. It's too niche. There's over 16,000 payroll providers in the United States. Think about that for a moment. And when you start to talk about how many of those thousands are those small shops that are going to struggle to keep up with these things that you're talking about, uh, the technology, the, the regulations, I mean, it's going to create a lot of challenges. Now, let me ask you this, sort of a confluence of two things you've talked about so far. You've talked about driving value in your business every day, and now you're talking about making an exit. I'm, I'm honestly shocked about how many people are starting payroll companies that don't understand the exit potential. So I'll talk to a, somebody who's going, yeah, I'm really interested in starting a payroll business, talk to us about your software, et cetera. And, and, and they'll go, I'm looking at partnering with Gusto or XYZ. And I'll say, you know, you don't own your clients when they're with Gusto. So that's not a very good business strategy when you think about, are you aware the potential multipliers, if you can sell your book of business 10 years from now and what that's worth to you as a potential, oh no, and, and I, I'm almost educating people on what their possible exit strategy is for their business, which is a terrible sign in the first place. But if it, for those people who do know in our licensing software and are growing a meaningful payroll business, what are some of the things that you see that drive the value up for a payroll company when it does come time to exit? Well, it, that's a good question, Matt, from the point of view that, that people understand what they're building and where the value is. So the obvious is clients. Good clients and the type of client that you have. Uh, today, from a due diligence point of view, we're very careful in terms of looking at client base to understand what markets 
what industries are represented in that client base. So there's one factor from a client point of view. The other factor has to do with what, what group those clients exist in. Uh, we've defined the market generally, the, the, the business market, the economy, into four groups. Group one being very small clients, call it one to five employees. Group two being uh, employers, let's say from five to maybe 50 to 75 employees. Group three, middle-sized companies might represent anywhere from, let's say 75 employees to maybe 500 employees. And then the enterprise size of group four would be what you would see as a national accounts. Now, when you look at the economy generally, over 96% of the small businesses in the United States live in group two. So that's a focus group. When I look at somebody's business and I find that they're all over the board, small clients, middle-sized clients, big clients, I'm gonna analyze that, that client base very, very carefully. Because from our point of view, one of our successes has been focus. We are very focused in group two. That's where we live. If a client outgrows us, we don't try to change the software up or find the fix to keep that client. In many cases, we help them move on if they've outgrown us. But in that small business market space of five to 50 employees, most clients for the most part are stable. They're not growing. Companies that are able to get over 5 million and then get over 10 million in revenue are rare. That's very rarefied air. And it's also representative of our industry as well. Something I might talk about a little bit as we move along here. But so obviously number one in value is clients. Number two would be sales growth. What type of sales processes and what type of history from a growth point of view, does the, does the uh, business have? Are they able to also retain clients or is there a lot of turnover? So we look very closely at retention levels and that basically may speak to, are they a full service provider or are they a low cost, low service provider? So as part of that mix, we're gonna look at the revenue and we're gonna analyze from a key uh, performance indicator, KPIs, what does that revenue look like? Cost per check. If it's low, they're basically indicating that they may be a low cost provider, which also probably equates to a low service provider, which then might tell us that they have a low retention. So the sales process though becomes very important and if, it, if it's really good, it's another notch from a value point of view. Then you go to operations. How efficient are they? What type of operational processes do they have? And are those operational processes, in a sense, providing great economies of scale and efficiency? Hmm. If they are, there's another click that'll, that'll add value. Uh, the fourth area is technology. If they have a proprietary technology, that adds value. Check all of those boxes and now you have a company that, that is at the extreme high of value. And if you look at some of the M&A uh, 
people out there, some of the PE firms, the venture firms, there's a matrix that exists that'll basically put you into a box of value. And it's all related to those factors I just gave you. So yeah, I'm a, sorry, go ahead, finish that thought. Industry, the, the majority of players, and I'm talking about a big majority of players, only exist with the first box. They have clients. <laughs>Let me ask you a question. Are you the go-to person in your market for payroll and HR? Are you the first face and name somebody thinks of when they think about who am I going to refer this person that needs help with their payroll and HR support? If not, you might want to look into our executive LinkedIn management service through Underdog Digital. Underdog Digital is a sponsor of this show, and they've seen results such as, I'm looking at one profile right here where over the course of six months, they increased views by over 200%, more than 600,000 views on these posts in, in less than six months. Uh, another one, a plus 1,000% increase in eight new conversations in the first 30 days. This is a tremendous service to help you to become the go-to person for uh, payroll and HR outsourcing in your market. They create content for you, engage with other people in your space, send connection requests, and do outreach to generate conversations that do nothing more than create valuable relationships with your target audience. If you're interested in learning more about Underdog Digital's executive LinkedIn management service, go to underdogdigital.co. That's underdogdigital.co. I can attest to that wholeheartedly. And it's interesting because I, I look, if, if you get onto the bottom of my screen right now and pull open one of the spreadsheets that's open, it's from, I'll give a shout out to Pendleton Street Business Advisors, our local consulting firm, um, where that is an analysis they did on our business that basically walked through a very similar matrix like you're talking about what's our client mix what's our focus what industries do we serve what's our growth been you know how defensible are we what are our internal operations look like can the business exist without the leadership set you know all those boxes that we're checking them um so, so as you're listening to that payroll folks specifically but this goes to any small business i think this is kind of interesting we've niched down to the payroll industry here but these things cross industries obviously you know you talk about that industry focus i heard a great acronym uh one time Focus stands for follow one course until success. And I love that. We just talked about our team meeting this morning of just being and maintaining focus. The sales growth, uh, you know, Facebook, I, I watched one of their leaders one time on a webinar talk about how the number one growth metric they have is client retention, user retention. Because if people are falling out of the funnel at the bottom, it doesn't matter how much you're going out and selling and bringing on new users, right? Your, your growth is just completely cannibalized. You talk about operations and processes, been a recurring theme throughout each of these episodes. I think everybody we've talked to have just been process uh, wizards. And, and I think it's imperative in our industry because you've talked about it. You can't be the low cost provider, but even if you're the high cost provider, it's not like we sell a high dollar service here. So you've got to have processes and procedures in place that are going to allow you to be profitable on those uh, small earnings that you're going to have, especially in that you know five to 50 to 75 employee range. 
and then technology. Now, this is something that I think a lot of people are very scared of is building some of their own proprietary technology, or maybe even naive enough to think they can do it in some circumstances. Uh, there, there's both sides of that fence, it, and it's a very complex industry to grow in, but if you can build out a niche there, it does increase that value tremendously. So that's, that's wonderful. You talked about something you said you wanted to come back to our industry specifically and talk a little bit about the state of the industry. Share with us your thoughts on, on kind of uh, the payroll industry specifically. Well, not unlike many industries, you've got, you've got some very large companies, public companies out there that have grown and, and have been successful in growth and uh, over literally decades um, have done extremely well. And th those are rarefied air. It's a very, very small percentage of the companies within our industry. Uh, what's very interesting is that the majority of companies within our industry struggle to get over a million dollars in revenue. And there's a couple plateaus that I've observed. There's a plateau at about 500,000 in revenue and then there's a plateau at a million. And it all has to do with investment and ability to execute. And typically it's execute on the sales side. Most of the smaller providers in our industry, for the most part, are good service people. They service their clients well. And most of the licensed software packages are okay, they're pretty good. And they do the job. But to get over that million dollar revenue mark is not an easy task. Mm. And with the number that you, uh, gave of 16,000 potential small business payroll providers. That includes everybody that's doing anything for the most part related to payroll. Right. Very specifically adjust payroll service bureaus. You're talking about maybe six to 7,000 nationally and far and away the majority of those exist under a million dollars. There's less than 250 to 300 payroll service bureaus that are over a million in revenue. That's right from Dun and Bradstreet. And we've done a lot of database research. As part of the, the uh, M&A uh, focus that we've had over the last few years, it's building a database and really making sure that we have as much information as, and data as we can possibly gather and constantly up, updating that data. Uh, that's very important in terms of our focus of, of who, we're, who we're gonna go after and uh, how we're gonna go after them. That's awesome. Well, and that's very interesting to consider. And you're absolutely right. I mean, that 16,000 includes every guy who's, you know, got a bookkeeping, who does four payroll clients and, uh, and all that. So it's a misleading number in that respect. But it's interesting to hear that number of six to 7,000. It's the first time I've heard it. And I know, obviously, you put more research into it than most uh, with your background and what you guys are trying to accomplish. So, so talk to me a little bit about that. Talk to me about where does ConnectPay go from here? So you guys have grown, like you mentioned, made that transition in 2016, 2017 to make the M&A a part of the business model. You've got the organic sales. You guys have a great outside sales team. I've met several of them, tremendous group of uh, folks. Talk to me about what the future looks like for your firm. Well, we're, we're very much focused on growth. We're, we're looking to grow at somewhere between 30 and 40% annually. That's a big number. It's a, it, it's a difficult number to, to achieve. 
We've been achieving those, that number consistently now. Uh, we're very confident. We've got a, a very full pipeline. We're going to grow once again in that, that two-pronged approach. We're going to continue to grow our organic sales team. Uh, and from an M&A point of view, I'm growing the team here as well. We now have a dedicated uh, conversion transition team. So we know we, I, we've done 16 acquisitions now since 2017. And we've gotten great experience. We've put the right players in place to once an acquisition is uh, started, we know exactly where to go with it and how to do it. And uh, not every deal is one that you want. We're very, we're very cautious in terms of, and very selective. Uh, one factor that most people won't recognize on, on the surface anyway, is culture. Hmm. Culture is maybe the most important factor in a deal. Making sure that it fits, that the philosophies are compatible is extremely important from a retention point of view, uh, from a staff point of view. And I think we're a bit unique. You know, my competitors out there from an acquisition point of view are the big boys. Right. And I'm very proud to say I haven't lost one deal <laughs> to the big boys. And part of the reason for that is number one, being selective of, of who we're going to acquire and who we're going to merge with. Number two is that the big boys tend to have a template. Here's the way we do it. Here's how it's going to go. Here's how you're going to get paid. See you later. Goodbye. Well, every deal is unique in a sense. I like to say it's not, a, it's not just a win-win proposition, buyer-seller. It's a win-win-win-win. The buyer has to win. The seller has to win. The client has mm. to win. And the staff has to win. So literally every stakeholder within the organization has to win in order to make an acquisition really work. And we've done acquisitions where we've, and, and part of our strategy also from that growth point of view in doing these mergers and acquisitions are access to talent, people, experience. In order for us to grow, we have to continually grow our, our, our bench, have more trained, better, smarter people. We want to continuously surround ourselves with people that are smarter than us. That's how we grow. And where do you find those people? You find them in the businesses that are out there in our industry. There's a lot of smart people out there. Hmm. And we want them on our team. We, we will do everything to get them on our team. Some of the sellers, it's been really interesting. Some of those sellers from a demographic point of view that on the initial uh, side of the analysis said to us, I'm burnt out, I'm done. I've had enough. Well, in a couple cases, I get a call 30 days later that says, what could I do? I want to get back in. How do we... How do we do something together? And we've been able to carve out some really creative thoughts and ideas to keep that seller still involved in the business in a sense. And that's been a real positive. I just that's did awesome. a deal. I just literally did a deal a month ago where uh, 
the seller and his staff are going to continue on running the business uh, for the next three years. They're going to stay apart. And then the seller who will retire at that point uh, will probably continue to just be involved in some probably very minor way, but the staff will all come on board with us. So that's, awesome. that's how we fuel growth. Now, I want to caution everybody from a point of view. This is not cheap. <laughs> Two things that have to be recognized. You, you touched on it when you started talking about technology. Technology is a black hole. Michael and I have invested literally millions and millions of dollars and continue investing millions into technology. It's changing all the time. Uh, just what's happened in the last five months, you can't imagine the pressure that's, that's put on our development team in terms of being able to accommodate some of the changes that have occurred just in the last few months related to uh, the coronavirus and how it's impacted small businesses. Uh, changes that we, we know we want to make in terms of the platform generally. We're, we're very fortunate in that our platform, from a foundational point of view, is extremely reliable and, and from a point of view of scalability, we have enormous scalability. So all of those things are wonderful, but you have to keep investing. So that's a huge expense. And therefore, that's why value when you're evaluating a business becomes that much higher. Hmm. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is in doing acquisitions, you have to be capitalized pretty well in order to, to do acquisitions. This is not something for the faint of heart. Um, it, it, it's expensive. Organic growth is less costly than acquisition. It's just a fact. You can grow organically at a slower pace but you can grow organically for much less money than doing acquisition. But with our strategy of a mix, we believe we're in the right place at the right time in the right market. And uh, combine that with our overall strategy of the connected model, we believe we're in a good place. You touched on so many things there. I want to I want to hit on a few of them. First of all, that win 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 win. Did I hit all four there? Four wins. So the client and the staff. And you talked about beating the nationals, and and I think that example you just gave of you know keeping the staff in place for three years, putting something that was in place that hit those four wins is the exact reason why you're going to beat the nationals when it comes to head to head with an acquisition. But I'll turn that on side a little bit for those of us that are just going head to head on a deal every day. If you're not winning 75% of your deals against nationals, then you don't have your value prop very well defined uh, because you should be taking, unless you just clearly are not in that right grouping, right? Group, uh, Paul gave the example earlier of group one and one to five employees, group two, five to seven. You know, if you're trying to compete in group four or 500 plus and you don't have the technology stack to do it, then yeah, you're going to lose a lot of those deals. But when you're, when you're swimming in the right lane, you've got your value prop defined and you're going, the, the nationals are the low hanging fruit, man. We love to see somebody with ADP because we very rarely lose ADP because we know that 
we're not the same as them. You're going to like that or you're going to like what we have and what we have is just better. And so the, the, if you're not doing that and you're not winning those deals, I urge you and encourage you to, to redefine your value proposition to get clearer on it and redefine your sales processes. But going back to the technology, you talked about the black hole. People call me all the time about building HR or payroll technology because we've done it. We've got some experience with it. We haven't spent millions, but we've spent hundreds of thousands. And the I always use Zen Payroll. Now Gusto is the example. When they first rolled out, they raised one of the biggest rounds in the history of our industry, but they could only go one state at a time. I mean, it takes a long time to build payroll technology specifically, state-specific functionality on the HR side. You know, it's HR is death by a thousand cuts, man. Like, in, and you start to figure that out real quick when you start building technology. And it's an on, you don't just pay a developer 50, 100, $200,000 and it's over. You're making a monthly investment every month to have that product kept up to date, to continue to add the features that come in every day, to continue to keep up with situations like what's happened this year with COVID-19. Uh, so, so I certainly urge people to make sure that they're, they're doing their due diligence before going into the technology game. Um, but also say, Hey, if you can afford to do it, do it. Now let's bring it back to that. Cause we've touched on a lot of things. You, you came off of some really successful ventures prior to moving into connect pay. You probably, if I'm just to be blunt, had some resources, team, all the things kind of in place to get going that most of us don't have when we start, right? A lot of us start like I am right here. I'm at my back at my home office with COVID, which is where I started just me and a phone up here and you know, a laptop and, and we got rolling. I didn't have a book of business. I didn't, I wasn't well capitalized. I, I was just picking up the phone and trying to make it happen. So if you were to get dropped off in the middle of, uh, you know, a city today, you, you had no, you had no capitalization. You just had to get a payroll business started from the ground up. You, you weren't going to be able to build your own technology. You're not a developer. You got to go out. How would you do that, Paul? What advice would you give to that person? The, the more uh, sort of traditional route, I would say. Well, you know, it's, it, yeah, we were capitalized and yes, we've had experience, but, but we've been there. We've, we've been in that dropped in a city, so to speak, and, and had to do it from the ground floor from your, from your basement or your, your home office or your bedroom, whatever it may have been. Uh, there, there's a couple things that we've learned over time, and that's, first off, uh, people you surround yourself with. Mm. Your first hire is probably going to be your most important hire that you'll ever make. Be very selective. Make sure that, that you've got all the uh, all the boxes checked in a sense in terms of this person that you're going to bring on board. Who are you going to surround yourself with in order to help launch your business and move forward? Licensing today, I am not very pro on licensing because I'm, I just don't, and, th and this is probably the most difficult part in our industry today, is that uh, the licensing model within our industry is becoming... Uh, broken in a sense. It's very difficult for licensors to continue to, to generate uh, profitability in a licensing model. And that is a trickle down. And I'll give you an example of that. Years ago, when you were going to license a software product in our industry, you were going to pony up a fairly sizable check. Mm -hmm. $100,000 is a downstroke. And then there was maintenance on top of that. Well, today, the smartphone has kind of changed the world in terms of the value of software. 
people believe that uh, number one apps are free or a dollar ninety nine. So nobody's ponying up big checks. And even the licensors in our industry, you can get in fairly inexpensively. However, read the agreements very, very closely because there are accelerating costs that could come back to bite you. And there are terms that can come and really impact your future. So it depends on what you're building and why you're building. If you're only building from a lifestyle in a short period of time, you're not looking for a 25 year career, maybe it works. But if you're looking for the long term, you need to be very, very cautious in this, in this industry today. You gave an example earlier that I want to come back to, and that was the, the individual that was uh, basically a broker. They were going to select Gusto from a software platform point of view. Well, what they were going to become at that point is a broker. They don't own the clients right. from an equity point of view. They, they've got to be very careful about the equity side of that deal. They may be able to gain income from it and generate revenue, but they don't necessarily have any equity to speak of and therefore won't have much liquidity down the road. That's a broker type relationship. And I see within our industry the potential for many of what are licensors today really moving people much more toward a broker environment. I think our industry is in some change and we're going to see some, some major change over the next five years. So that's my caution. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's a caution. I, I will kind of piggyback on that a little bit with just the, our own experience of we started out with a software stack that included payroll relief from Accountants World as our payroll platform. Uh, after a couple of years, we said, oh, geez, this is just small business software. And, you know, their, their model's great. We love it. They have integrated ACH and tax. I, I'm always happy to give them a shout out because that's a very rare phenomenon when you are licensing nowadays. Usually I've got to go out and get a third party to do tax, a third party to do ACH. And it's just creates multiple vendor relationships. Right. And, you know, we left payroll relief to go into one of those licensing agreements with the big upfront fee and the recurring fees and the long-term agreement. And you know what we found was that the technology owned us, not vice versa. We spent all of our time maintaining technology. We spent all of our time trying to keep together a system that was antiquated, you know, not up to date. We couldn't compete with the folks like the, you know, talk about competing with Augusto. Now, are you kidding me? We couldn't compete with the QuickBooks. We couldn't compete with anybody. We had some of the worst technology on the market. Uh, but then we came back and kind of going back to that focus, follow one course until success, we realized like, hey, we fit squarely in group two, you know, five to 75 employees. We don't need to try to buy this enterprise system to go upstream. And so kind of knowing who you are is really important, but you're absolutely right. I'm just hearing more about these contracts and kind of the, the potential buyback situations that exist in them down the road and, and conflicting stories and, and just, you know, how it's explained to different licensees. And it's, it's a very interesting field right now as it relates to white label. And I think, you know, our model that we've moved towards with Guru is more of a flat fee, no big upfront licensing fees, you know, just sort of uh, kind of getting more in line with what a, the SaaS space does. 
And we're seeing people gravitate more towards that because like you said, there's not a big surprise in it for me. There's not a fee for every single thing. I know what my investment is every month based on the number of users I have on my platform, but it's an interesting space. It's one that I'm really excited about because, uh, um, you know, unlike you, I, I do, you know, I understand where you're coming from as somebody who's built technology. That's obviously valuable to me and, and we understand the moat that we produce when we do that. I also understand how hard it is. I know that 99% of folks in our industry are going to go the licensing route. So you've got to get well educated on what makes the most sense for you. And is it actually a license or are you using that? You know, what does that arrangement look like? And to go back to your point, you got in this to build value, which is equity in the long run. When you're selling for ADP, you're selling for Gusto, you're se that's all you are, you're a sales rep, you're a broker, as Paul mentioned. And we see a lot of folks that make the transition from, I'm a CPA firm or an accounting firm, and now I'm gonna start offering payroll. And the easiest way for me to do that is to do it through this ADP wholesale rep that keeps coming into my office every week. And you know, I get a nice kickback on it, and it feels great because I got a revenue stream, but they could shut that program down anytime, and then you've got nothing, you don't own a single client and have any revenue. So just so things to be careful of, and, and great points here by Paul. Um, Paul, talk to us a little bit about, obviously, if anybody's listening to this and you are, are sitting in that boat of like, dang, I've had enough, uh, no matter what you guys have to say, this, the, I've just realized it's time for me to get out. I'm a boomer. I'm ready to sell my business. Obviously, we want people to connect with you guys and learn more about your acquisition services if that's the case. But what are some parting thoughts you'd like to leave people with and how can we connect with you? Well, I think probably the number one thought is if you're contemplating getting out of the business, finding that liquidity event. The, the real point is that you, you got to start by doing your homework, understand what your business is like, understand your client base, uh, put your ducks in order in a sense so that when we do come in and we start evaluating, uh, we can evaluate relatively quickly and we can really uh, get to a point where you can make a decision quickly, quickly enough. And, and that decision has a lot to do with uh, value and value is very interesting. Um, there's, a, there's a saying that I like to, uh, uh, I read it uh, a few years ago and it sticks with me. Uh, the best buyer, I'm looking up so I don't mess it up. The best buyer isn't always the one with the highest price. The high, it's the highest price from the best buyer. And that's what you have to really look to. Um, the best buyer is the, the buyer that, that really provides the win, 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 win. If you have staff, I know one of the deals that I did, this particular seller had an ADP agreement sitting on his desk for literally two years. And there were two factors that when I said to him, they're giving you a value that's higher than the value I'm, I'm giving you. Why haven't you signed that agreement for two years? And he said to me, well, for the last 20 years, I've been selling against ADP. And I've told my clients how bad ADP is. What would it look like in this small town where many of these clients are my friends that now I've sold out to ADP? That was number one. Number two, he had a veteran, a woman who had been with him for 20 years, staff person. She was still in her 40s. And he had a loyalty to her. Well, ADP wasn't going to take her on. They weren't mm -hmm. interested in her. And it was very important for him that we recognized her value. 
she's a superstar in our organization. And then on top of that, we're able to pay her better. She's got better benefits. And like everybody in our organization, there's equity. Hmm. So those are all important factors that any seller has to begin to consider and think about as they're going to go down this path. Um, the other part of this is, and this is where the licensing model becomes potentially inhibiting for a seller. In some cases, sellers have right, or uh, licensors have rights of, fir la of first refusal on a, on a sale. They may have terms within the agreement that prevent the seller from really getting a, the best deal that they can possibly get. Uh, there's many considerations that they have to look at. We've got the experience now of having gone through this. Like I said, we've done 16. We've seen just about everything at this point. So experience counts. Experience is very important. And, uh, and we're available. You can go to, we have a website now totally dedicated to just uh, the M&A side of our business. And you can reach me through that. You can reach me directly through my, my phone number, but I'd encourage you to go to uh, uh, sellyourpayrollbusiness.com. That's the website. Nice. Or you can go to our Connect Pay USA website and get to me through there as well. Awesome. And we'll link all that in the description of the podcast for those of you checking it out. And, and thank you so much for your time, Paul. I could go on all day with this. Uh, everything you, you say, I've got five more questions, but for time's sake, I'll let you get on with your day. I appreciate your time so much. Well, Matt, you know, anytime I, I am available, I, I love doing this. I love talking to people about where we've been, what we've done, how we're doing it. We're very open and we want people to be successful in our industry. It, it's important. It's, it, it's extremely important. We don't want five big players controlling the entire industry. This is about freedom. Small business is freedom. Our mission is supporting those small businesses. We consider ourselves freedom fighters. <laughs> I'll leave with one last phrase. So years ago, I'd go to a cocktail party and people would say, oh, what do you do? And I'd say, oh, I'm in the payroll business. And they'd kind of roll their eyes and, you know, he's an accountant, which I have no accounting background or experience. Today, I go to a cocktail party and people ask me what I do. I tell them I'm a freedom fighter <laughs> because that's exactly what we do. We support small business and small business is freedom in America. Awesome. Love it. That thought. I love it. I love it. And it brings me to every, I've always told people if, if I am at a dinner party and I don't want to talk to somebody and they ask me what I do, I tell them I do payroll and then that ends the conversation. So per <laughs> perfect, Paul. Thanks so much for your time. Have an awesome day, man. I appreciate you. Take care. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed that episode, please share it with someone else you know who might enjoy it and learn from this. And also, please rate us five stars on your favorite podcast player. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen. And also, don't hesitate to reach out with other topics you'd like to hear more about. Thanks so much.